Welcome to the Christian Ministries Church Podcast. My name is Josh Barnett. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. We're praying that this message equips and empowers you to live in the kingdom of God. Well, as um, I said, David and Cheryl Barton are with us. Uh, I always, um, I don't know, I have a little bit of a difficult time introducing David like you don't know who he is. Uh, First of all, Terry and I have been very, very good friends with David and Cheryl for almost 40 years now. We have literally traveled all over, the, pretty much all over the United States together, as far south, as far north, as far east and west as you can go. We've been together uh, and done a lot of things together over the years. And to me, he's just David. Not so with the rest of the world. Uh, pretty much everywhere we go, it's bad to be in the bathroom with your friend and like, are you David Barton? Could I have your autograph? Well, I'm not finished right now, but in a minute. I mean, really, uh, it's just amazing what God is doing with and through this, this man in the ministry that God's called him to and to see the national impact that it's having. Uh, he uh, has got so much going on, literally doesn't know where he's going to be till the next day. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm just looking uh, would it be okay? If, I don't know what you got planned, but tomorrow I got a TV show I got to do for Victory Network at 11:45. Then I'm going to need to have a. That we've got another channel for another TV show tomorrow at four o'clock. Uh, but other than that, I'm pretty much free the rest of the day. Other than that, are you kidding? I've been that nervous wreck for two weeks getting just thought about something like that. Anyway, we are blessed to have David and Cheryl here. Uh, we're blessed to be a part of their ministry. For uh, almost 40 years now, this church has sent a monthly check uh, to this ministry. We are a supporter of what God's doing through them, and uh, our money is well spent. So when you come to the altars and you put money in these baskets, you need to know that part of that is going to wall builders to support the ministry that God's called them to. Uh, Cheryl's back in the back. You see her when you go out. I think she's got a few books left. Uh, I just, I can't recommend their stuff enough. I can't recommend their ministry enough. Um, We're honored and we're blessed here in Hot Springs to have David Barton. David, come share with us. Y'all help me welcome him to Hot Springs. Thanks, bro. Thanks, man. Good to be with you guys this morning. I want to start with a Bible verse out of Revelation. Uh, It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and it says, And Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. What's that mean? Well, we have good illustrations of how this can be applied, what it means. And those illustrations, so many of them, we can go back to American history and choose that. And I particularly want to choose two examples. Excuse me. The, The example, the first two colonies started in America. The first colony started in America was Jamestown. The second colony was Plymouth. Now, those are the first two colonies, but they are very unlike each other. As a matter of fact, to borrow from the title of a book that Charles Dickens did in 1859, it's A Tale of Two Cities. It's two very different colonies. And if you take those two colonies and look at them, let me start with Jamestown. Jamestown was founded in 1607. And when those first settlers came to Virginia and they landed, they landed at a place called Cape Henry. And when they landed there, they got out, they erected a cross, and they dedicated the land. They dedicated America to, to the Lord. They dedicated Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, if you will look at the Virginia Charter, this is what it says. They said, we've done this because it tends to the glory of God's divine majesty and propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. 
We've done this because there are people who don't know Jesus, and we want to make sure they know Jesus. That's a really commendable objective. So we can easily say that that Virginia colony, they were professing Christian evangelicals. They're here to evangelize people, bring them to Christ. That's a great objective. But I'll also point out with the Virginia colony, they were not biblical Christians. Is it possible to be evangelical and not be biblical? Can you be an evangelical Christian and, and not be grounded in the Bible? Apparently, and I'll show you how that worked in this particular colony. If you go back to Jamestown, when they started, the 1619 Project picked them up to say, this is what America's all about. 1619 Project came out five years ago in 1919, in 2019. It is now taught in all 50 states. It is a really bad piece of history. It is all agenda-driven, and it's all about making us think that we're something we were not in order that we'll become something we've never been. And so when you look at the 1619 Project and what they have, what they do is they say, oh, yeah, America, 1619, Jamestown defines America because these guys had slavery. And they did have slavery. They were pro-slavery. No question about that. Now, what happened with, with Virginia colony slavery is not at all what 1619 Project says because slavery in Virginia didn't start in 1619. It started in 1653 when a black man named Anthony Johnson sued to own another black man named John Kaser. And the court said, yeah, you can do that. So slavery in America starts with black-on-black -black slavery? Really? That's not the narrative we get, but that's what happened in Jamestown. It doesn't matter. What happens is Jamestown had slavery, and they were pro-slavery. No question about that. So when you look at Jamestown, these people that came here, th think about where they've been and what they've come to, because they've been 1,300 years living in Europe under a system of government that is very heavy-handed. They've got kings. They've got queens. They've, they've got rulers that tell them what they'll do, when they do. They don't have private property. Anything they have can be taken by the king or queen, given to anyone else. If you've been good in war, the king will give you a land, give you a state. But if he doesn't like you, take it away and give it to somebody else. Everything about it is big government. Everything you do is working for the king or queen. You don't work for yourself. Everything you make goes to them, and they'll give you back the portion that you think that they, that they think that you need. So when you look at them, what, what happens with the Jamestown colony is they are very pro-socialistic. Now, they didn't call it that then. They wouldn't know. But it's big government. Everything you did was for the government. The government will give you back what, you think, what they think you need. So they are pro-socialistic. They don't have a concept at all of free market or of working for themselves or of doing things for themselves. So when you look there, when they get to, to Jamestown, they're dependent on the king to send them supplies. And anything they work and produce in Jamestown, they're going to send back to the king. So they are dependent on the government to send them what they need. And the government wasn't always real conscientious in getting them the stuff when they needed because it's just a few hundred people over there. And the king's got, got colonies all over the world to think about. He's not thinking about Jamestown much. And so the, the supplies did not come on a regular basis. They didn't have everything they needed. And they weren't really used to working hard. They worked for the government. So what they did was they went to the Indians and said, hey, you guys, exactly. So they went to the Indians and said, you guys, you, you know you're on the king's land. All, all this belongs to the king. And it really did. And as a matter of fact, if you will look at the early maps of the United States back then or what comprised the United States, you will find that Virginia started at the Atlantic Ocean and went to the Pacific Ocean. The entire thing was called Virginia. And the king said, I own it all. It's, it's mine. And the, the natives that are there, they, they're, they're mine. And so the colonists went to the natives and said, hey, uh, we need you guys to supply us with food. I mean, you work for the king. The king owns all this, and you're on his land, so we need some food. So what happened the first two years, the Indians, being good neighbors or trying to be good neighbors, they did. They, they supplied them with food, brought them corn, brought them grain, brought them other stuff so they could live. The colonists weren't working very hard. They are relying on somebody else to, to do the stuff for them. And so what happens after those two years, 
They, they get into a situation where their governor, uh, John Smith, he said, this is not going to work, guys. He said, you can't depend on the king to get stuff here when we need it. We need to be doing other stuff. And by the way, this is not even biblical. John Smith quoted to them 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that says, he that will not work will not eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. He said, that's the new rule of the colony. And they objected to it. No, no, no. You can't make us work. We're relying on the king for it. It was so bad that Governor Dale actually took a whip and whipped people to make them work because they wouldn't work. They were just waiting for stuff to come to them. And so what happened was the people didn't like his policy if you have to work in order to eat, biblical policy. And so they did an explosion, tried to blow him up. They didn't kill him, but he was burned badly enough. He had to go back to England, get treatment. So now the governor's gone. That's great. His philosophy's gone. And so what happens with all that gone, they say, you Indians need to supply us what we need for this winter. And the Indians said, look, for the last two years we've done that. We haven't had enough for us to live on. We're not going to give you any stuff this winter. You're going to have to do it yourself. And they didn't do it themselves, but they didn't have the supplies. And so as a result of not having supplies, in that third year that they were there, 1609, 1610, they entered into what's called the starving time. When they went into that third winter, there were 490 colonists in that third winter. When they came out of that third winter, there were only 60 colonists left. So 430 of them starved to death in that winter. It was really bad. As they, people were dying from starvation, they would go bury them in the, in the cemetery. And, and somebody said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're starving to death. We're burying people in the cemetery. They, they just got meat on their bones. Let's go eat that. So they dug up bodies out of the cemetery to eat the meat off the bones of who they'd buried in the cemeteries. They resorted to cannibalism, even live cannibalism. One, one guy in Jamestown Colony, his wife was pregnant. He killed her. He ate the unborn child and then they ate her. And as you can imagine, they executed him. And then they ate him after they executed him. I mean, the whole thing was twisted. So they go through, they come out of that winter. It's not a good situation at all. So they don't want to have this again. So what happens is they start Indian wars. They start fighting the Indians. You're going to supply us with food. They even kidnap Pocahontas. Pocahontas had been really helpful to them first couple of winters. She's the one that got the Indians to bring food. They've now kidnapped her, the princess of the, the, the chief, and they're holding her for, for hostage and ransom. You bring us food and we'll take care of So it, it was just bad all the way around. You, you look at Jamestown. It's not a good colony situation at all. They were elitist. They were very socialistic. They were pro-slavery. They were big government. They were group conscious. They had the, you know, the lords and nobles all the way down to the yeomen and the workers and all the classes in between. And it's not like all the individuals were equal. Everybody, you had to be in a class to be. And so that's the way Jamestown was. And so as you look at Jamestown in that period of time, this is why 1619 Project took them and says, this is what America is. This is what defines America. And so this is what they're presenting to kids all over the United States is this is what America has been since its very, very beginning. Well, that is 1619, but as I pointed out, there's another second colony, 1620. We're going to call the 1620 Project, but we're really looking at the second colony that came in in 1620, and it is the tale of two cities. It's quite different from Jamestown, not even close to Jamestown. When you look at the pilgrims, it's an interesting thing about the pilgrims, and by the way, this painting of the pilgrims actually hangs in the capital of the United States. It's 20 feet high. It's 30 feet wide. It is a massive, it's a life-size painting of the pilgrims. So they're on board the Speedwell coming to America. And interesting, nearly every picture you see of the pilgrims, you will always find Bibles in that picture. The Bible is what was the center of their life. You see them all gathered around that Bible there. And so what happens is as they're coming to America, their pastor, John Robinson, has a word for them. Now, the pilgrims, they weren't colonists per se. They were a congregation. 
They were a congregation that had been persecuted by the king. The king drove them over Holland, and then the king persecuted them in Holland, which wasn't even his country. And they said, listen, we're going to have to go to the new world to get away from the king persecuting us. So the congregation is going to the new world. They're large enough that it takes two ships to get them there. But one of the ship has trouble that the ship doesn't make it, the speedwell doesn't make it. And so it's the Mayflower that does make it. Those were the two ships. So Pastor Robinson has got all the congregation together, says, guys, we're headed for the new world. We don't know what we'll find there, but we know it's here. We're going to have to create something new there. And he tells them, when you get there, he said, do not carry with you the darkness that you've experienced here in Europe. Do different over there. Do new over there. Do what the Bible says over there. When you get over there, you're not bound by the traditions of Europe. You can start something new and do what the Bible says. And so that was the commission he sent them out with. Now, he didn't make it, and the ship he was on didn't make it, but half the congregation made it. So that was the Mayflower. So when they arrive, they arrive here in the New World. As they land in the New World, they don't get off the ship until they first make a covenant. They say, you know what? We're going to do things differently here. And so what they do is they create what's called the Mayflower Compact. That is the first civil government document created in the New World. In the Mayflower Compact, they make real clear what their objectives are. And by the way, when you look at the language... They say that we've undertaken for the glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, a voice to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Northern parts of Virginia? Yeah, remember, the whole thing is Virginia. It wasn't Massachusetts yet. They were in the northern parts of Virginia, which we now call Massachusetts. So they've taken this, this voyage, and they're there to, for the advancement of the Christian faith. So that, that's their stated objective. So as they consider what they're going to do, they've got all this new stuff. They said, all right, if we're going to do it different over here, we don't want the same kind of government that we've had in Europe. So what are we going to do for government over here? Well, let's see what the Bible says. You go to the Bible. The Bible illustrates seven different forms or seven different types of government. You have pharaohs, et cetera, like, like you had with, with Egypt and, and with Joseph. But you also have kings like King David and, and King Saul and all the kings. And they said, we don't want any of that. Well, if we're going to choose something, let's choose the first government that's talked about. And the first government that's talked about is back when God brought his people out of Egypt. He got them out in the desert and said, okay, now that you're away from Egypt, let's talk about what we're going to do from here for. And that's where the Hebrew Republic is created. That's the beginning of the Hebrew nation of Israel. And as God got them together, what he told them is in Exodus 18.21, Exodus 18.21 says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. In other words, have elections for local, county, state, and federal level, we would call it. And it says, choose able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, to rule in the fear of God. So what you want to do is have elections at all these levels, and these are the qualifications for people for office. And they said, that's, that's what we're going to do. So what they did was they started elective government. That was the first kind of government that they had. And so when they got off the boat, they said, we're not doing what we did in Europe. We're having elections. And they said, since the Bible didn't tell us how often to have elections, let's do them every year. So they elected their governor every year. One of their governors, William Bradford, served 30 terms. That sounds like a long time. Well, that's 30 years because you had an election every year. So they would have elections every year. And another thing they did was they were very conscious of, of different institutions. Um, and so what they did was they separated the institutions. If you go back to the creation of the Hebrew Republic, back when God had them in the desert, he says, Aaron, you take the temple. Moses, you take the government. Now, neither of those two guys was a secular guy at all. 
But what he did was he made sure that there were two institutions not run by the same individual. That changed the biblical pattern, it changed, and it actually tried to change in the Bible. If you look at 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah, God blessed him. Man was he a, a great king, a great warrior, came up with agricultural inventions and mechanical technology. You read the Bible, the guy's just amazing. And he was very God-fearing. And so what he did was he went, <clears throat> he went to the temple and said, I want to thank God for all the blessings I've had. I'm going to go offer sacrifices at the temple. So he went into the temple to offer sacrifices. The priest met him and said, no, no, no. God specified that the priests offer the sacrifices, not the kings. He said, I'm the king. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Get out of my way. He went in the temple, started to offer sacrifices. God struck him down at the altar. He went out. He had leprosy. He went off and died. So God made it really clear. I've got priests and I've got kings, and they're not the same thing. In 390 AD, that changed. Emperor Theodosius, who was the emperor of the world at the time, he became a Christian, and he made a global announcement. He said, I've now become a Christian. You're all going to become Christians, or I'm going to kill you. And that was his announcement. And so that's the first time you have one, one individual take both church and state and made it the same thing. The king is over. Every, the king will tell you what your doctrines are. And see, that's the way it was at the time of the pilgrims. If you live in England, you're going to be an Anglican because that's what the king said. If you live in France, you're going to be a Catholic because that's what the king said. If you live in Germany, you're going to be a Lutheran because that's what the king So this state-established church. So when our founding fathers talked about separation of church and state, it didn't mean secularize anything. It meant don't let the government tell you what your religious activities are. Don't let the government tell you that you can't pray in school. That's separation of church and state. They've got it reversed to say, oh, separation of church and state means you can't pray in school. No, separation of church and state means the government can't stop your religious activities. So that was the, that was the view that the founders had. We completely twisted that just like we've twisted American history. So when you look at what happened with Aaron and Moses, the guy said, okay, we're supposed to have annual elections, but we're supposed to have different institutions. So they had annual elections for their pastor and their governor. Every year we chose who's going to be our pastor. Every year we chose who's going to be our governor. So what they had done was they had both civil and religious leaders, which is a new thing in the world at that time. And they literally, they, they ended the state-established church. By ending the state-established church, we now for the first time had rights of conscience and religious toleration. If we're doing something religiously the government doesn't like, it doesn't matter because they can't persecute me because I happen to be a Quaker instead of a Baptist or I happen to be whatever. So that's, that's a big deal, and that came from the pilgrims. In addition to that, you'll also find that they dealt with the free enterprise system um, because they too were socialists when they got here. They were, we might say, communitarian or congregationalist. They, they really were doing what was in Acts 2, 41 to 22, where they all had everything in common. So as a, as a congregation, they're sharing everything together. But, you know, they wrote that some of in the congregation didn't work as hard as others, and some got the same amount even though they weren't doing anything, and they didn't really think that was fair. And so what happened is they were told by their pastors really simply— it said, 1 Thessalonians 3.10, if you don't work, you don't eat. And the governor picked that up too and said, yeah, that's right. That's what the Bible says. And so everyone's required to work. And they added a second verse to it, 1 Timothy 5.8 that says, if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an infidel. You've denied the faith. So, oh, we're all supposed to provide for our own family? So what they did, this is the birth of the free market economic system. This is where it shows up in, in the, all, all the recent centuries. It comes out of these guys right here. And when they did that, the first free market business started in America was in Aptucket, Massachusetts. It was 1627. It's a free market business. And it's interesting, from the time they shifted to this communitarianism over to free market, 
Within only two years, they had increased their productivity by sevenfold. There never was another time in the Massachusetts calling when they had a time of want. They had some really hard winters, not anymore, after they changed their economics. So they're the ones that birthed the free market economic system. In addition to that, you'll find that they also were very conscious about private property because when they landed in America, they got here months late. They were going to get here a lot earlier in the fall. They landed in December. And they landed in December in Massachusetts. That's a really bad time to land in Massachusetts and not have anything waiting for you. You don't have food. The food you had on the ship is all rotted and spoiled. Now you're in Massachusetts. Where are you going to get food for the rest of the winter? What are you going to do for houses? Because you've got nothing. And it is ice cold. And so what they started doing is they started constructing their houses. It was a tough winter. Half of them died that first winter because it was so hard. They didn't have shelter, etc. So what happens is as they're coming into the spring, they're saying, you know, we're on somebody's land. We don't have a clue whose it is, and we don't know if we're allowed to be here or not. But if we're going to make a colony here, we need to find some land that we can buy from somebody. And so as they're talking about this, a guy named, a guy named Samoset walks into the, into the group and looks at them and says, who are you guys and what are you doing here? They said, you're speaking English? Where did you learn English? Because they have no clue that any native anywhere in North America has learned English. And so here this guy walks in, he's speaking English, and they said, look, we don't know who owns this. We would really like to live here. Do you know if somebody might sell this to us? He said, I don't speak English that well. He said, I know somebody who does. And he went and brought to them Squanto. Squanto came. Squanto was very fluent in English. And they explained the situation, and Squanto quickly recognized these guys don't have a clue what they're doing over here. And so he adopted them, and they became his project for the next two years till he died. He showed them how to live there, and, and he, he, they want to buy property. So he connects them with King Massasoit, the, the head of all the tribes there. And they say, hey, would you be willing to sell this? And so, yeah. So they work out this agreement where they purchase the land on which they are. They respect the Indians' right to the land. They don't have any trouble. And it's interesting that if you look at what they did with that private property, and, and, and there, if you go 50 years after the pilgrims, the governor 50 years later is a guy named Josiah Winslow. He's their governor. And Josiah Winslow, 50 years later, and now there's thousands of these guys that have come to Massachusetts. And the governor points out, he says, I think I can clearly say that the English did not possess one foot of land in this colony, but what was fairly obtained by honest purchase the Indian proprietors. We don't have a square foot of land we're living on, but what we have a title deed to that land. They were very respectful of private property, of Indians' private property. And so the longest lasting treaty in American history between Anglos and Native Americans is the Pilgrims and the Wampanoags. And when the treaty was finally broken, it was broken by the Indians, not by the Anglos. So these Pilgrims have a whole different view of race relations and what happens there. In addition to that, when you look at what they do with civil rights, um, we, we know that slavery existed down in, in the Virginia colony or in the, in the Jamestown colony. It's a different situation here. In 1641, they passed a law that dealt with slavery. This is one of the civil laws they had. You see it here. Uh, it's law number 10. If any man stealeth a man or mankind, he shall be put to death. They called slavery man-stealing because slavery is going somewhere, stealing a person, taking them to another place and, and putting them in bondage. So it was called man-stealing. And they quoted Exodus 21.16 as the basis of that because that's what the Bible says. Man-stealing, you're put to death. And that's what the international slave trade was. So they said, we're not having that at all here. So what happens is 
They, they have this law that says we won't do slavery. Five years later, a ship came into the harbor. The ship came into the harbor. It was loaded with slaves because every nation in the world at that point is practicing slavery, not just America. Every nation in Europe, every nation in Africa, every nation everywhere has got slavery going on. The slave ship pulls in the harbor and says, hey, we got a load of slaves. Who needs slaves? we got lots of slaves. And the pilgrims say, you've got what? We have slaves. You guys want some slaves? So the captain and the officers come ashore, and they're pushing slaves and selling slaves. The pilgrims arrest the captain, they arrest the officers, and they sentence them to death. They said, slavery is a capital offense here in this colony. And the, the captain said, we didn't know. You guys don't have slavery? We've never had anybody who didn't have slaves. Everybody wants slaves. You don't want slaves? We didn't know it was illegal here. And the pilgrim said, point taken. We'll let you go because you didn't know it was illegal over here, but now you do. And if you ever come back here with another slave, we will execute you on the spot. So they left, and that was the, the pilgrim's policy, is we will not have any slavery. So much is that the policy that in 1792, an editorial cartoon came out in, in, in Boston newspapers. Uh, this is a 1792 cartoon. It is called the Equality Ball, 1792. On the left side, you see John Hancock. Governor of Massachusetts, signer of the Declaration, President of Congress. He's shaking hands with a guy named Wentworth Cheswell. Wentworth Cheswell is the wealthiest black man in America at that time. He's out of Massachusetts. He and his sons run a global shipping business. They send ships all over the world. And he and John Hancock are celebrating the fact that in Massachusetts, everybody's equal. As a matter of fact, uh, Robert Brown Elliott, who served in Congress, one of the early black congressmen, he said there never was a time in Massachusetts when blacks and whites weren't equal. That's not what the 1619 Project talks about, and you'll never hear that in history. You, you don't get that view. You get that America was always pro-slavery. Well, part of America was, and part of it wasn't. And that's, uh, again, something we don't cover in history. So civil rights, you look also. These guys, when they came to America, look at the crowd. They got a bunch of kids with them. And they're really concerned that their kids get an education. And they're over here in a wilderness with mostly people who don't speak English at all. And certainly nothing's printed over here. So what are we going to do? We need to create schools for our kids. Because if they don't learn to read, they'll never be able to read the Bible. And the Bible is the center of what we do. Everybody's got to read the Bible. So what they do is they create uh, uh, the first public school law. It appears in this called the Code of 1650s. All the laws they passed up to this, they put them together in this Code of 1650. They printed all the laws. And they had an education law in there. It's the first public school law in America. And the name of that law was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. And that's a really interesting name for a public school law. Why would you choose that name? Well, if you look at the law, here's what it says. It being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan. If Satan wants to get one thing done, if Satan has one objective, chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures as he has in former times. Satan's objective is to make sure we don't know the scriptures and then you can be abused as we were for 1,300 years in European history because we didn't know the scriptures. We didn't understand what God said about the king is not over religious expression. Government doesn't tell you what your faith. We didn't understand that. So we want to make sure that never happens here. And so this public school law started schools across Massachusetts. And it's interesting in those schools, they educated both men and women, boys and girls. Now, that wasn't going in Europe at that time, and it's interesting that in this backwater colony of Massachusetts, 
you have the highest literacy rate up for women of any nation in the world. I mean, Massachusetts had a higher literacy rate for women than did France or Italy or Spain or England because we taught everybody. Everybody needed an education. Everybody needed to know God's Word. That wasn't the way it was being done in Europe at the time. So public education, we take back to these guys. And this became the basis of America. If you look at 194 years later, if you look at that northern part of America up where, where Plymouth was, take New Jersey in 1816. Today, every state... Every year, we'll put out an annual education report. You guys have it in Arkansas. It comes out every year. Here's what happened in our schools this year. Every state has it. Had it back then. Here's the 1860 education report from the state of New Jersey in 1816, right up there with Massachusetts. Now they've grown 194 years later. They're a lot more than just Massachusetts. Here's, here's what's happening in the public schools in New Jersey. They say, and they're talking about what's happening in the first and second grade. So they say, all the scholars of the first and second classes, first and second grade, all, everybody in first and second grade commits to memory portion of the New Testament of Psalms, a lesson of the catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. So everybody that goes to public school up here, here's what all first and second graders learn. A lot of Bible, and what's the text of the preceding Sabbath? Whatever Tim preached about last week, we're going to memorize every Bible verse he mentioned last week. And so what the kids are doing in school is whatever the preacher talked about last Sunday, we're going to memorize all those verses this week. So this is public schools going in, in New Jersey, 1816. Now, they talked about that some of the kids were a little sharper than other kids, and we all know how that works. It says, one of the scholars has committed to memory the book of John and the first 30 Psalms together with the 119th Psalm. Anybody here memorize the 119th Psalm? <laughs> Anybody here memorize the Gospel of John? I don't know that I've met anybody in my life memorize the Gospel of John. This is first grade public school. Now, this is just one kid, all right? Understand, he's a sharp kid. Not everybody did this. Here's what everybody else did. It says, the majority have committed memory the Gospel of John. All of our first and second graders memorized the Gospel of John. But this really smart kid memorized 30 chapters out of Psalm and Psalm 119, but everybody does the Gospel of John. Really? This is public schools in New England? In 1816, 194 years after the pilgrims, and you're telling me the founding fathers didn't want the Bible in public schools, and that's why we took it out in 1963? No, that's not why. But see, this is where our history has been turned in such a way that we don't even know what we've been taught back then. So public education came from the pilgrims, and the sense that public education was God-centered education. Final thing is due process. And if we're going to fault the people of Massachusetts, this would be the area where we fault them. This is what every textbook I've ever seen in America talks about, the intolerant Christians. And why do we call those Massachusetts Christians intolerant? Because they had the witch trials. They come to America for religious liberty, and then they start killing people who believe differently from them. So you look at the witch trials, and just out of curiosity, how many people were killed in the Massachusetts witch trials? Twenty-seven. How long did the Massachusetts witch trials last? 18 months. Okay, that's not good. 27 people, 18 months. Now, I'm going to point out later that witch trials were happening all across the world. I'm going to show you what happened in the rest of the world. But the big question is, the witch trials stopped after 18 months. Why did they stop? Why did Massachusetts stop having witch trials when the rest of the world kept witch trials going for almost two centuries? rest of the world, Spain, France, all over the world, they were all having witch trials that lasted nearly two centuries. They lasted 18 months in Massachusetts. Why? Real simple. Three Christian leaders 
The Reverend John Wise, the Reverend Increase Mather, and Layman Thomas Brattle, they went to Governor Phipps and said, Governor, what you're doing is copying Europe. You're doing all the stuff they're doing in Europe, and that's not what the Bible says. You shouldn't be doing that. And so they took him through the Scriptures. And Governor Phipps looked at that and said, you are right. This is not right. He called in Judge Samuel Sewell and said, Sewell, you've got to stop the trials. Sewell was over the witch trials. said, Sewell, you've got to stop the trials. This is wrong. We're doing the wrong thing. They did stop the trials, and then the governor called for a statewide day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, seeking to avert God's judgment because they have shed innocent blood. And the Bible is very clear about the curse that comes on a nation when you shed innocent blood. And they don't want that on Massachusetts. They, they're seeking God's repentance. Then they turn around and find out all the families involved in the process, and they paid them all restitution because we should never have done this. See, it's, they didn't have witches. Anything that was... Well, let me see how I can say this. It wasn't witch stuff that was going to Massachusetts. For example, we have a document from one uh, of the people put on trial for being a witch. You know why they called her a witch? Because she was not married and she was pregnant. That had to be Satan that did that. Actually, there's a lot of explanations for that, quite <laughs> frankly. No, 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 that's a witch. That's the kind of stuff that they were trying. Was, was that kind of, it wasn't witches they were trying. That's not what, what was happening. And so they were just copying Europe, and they were doing all the due process stuff wrong. You were not allowed to represent yourself. You did not have any attorney to represent you. You could take hearsay evidence, whatever the government said. You accepted as truth. I mean, it was just bad stuff all the way. And so they get the witch trial stopped, and they even went back in the legal records and pulled the, name, the people's names out of the legal records because they should never have been in the law books as being a witch because they weren't a witch. And so they did everything they could to make it right. They made mistakes, and they did everything they could to make it right. So when you look at the world at the rest of that time, what's interesting is in those two centuries of witch trials over in Europe, how many people were killed in Europe in that, same, in that period of witch trials? 500,000. There's 27 in America. There's 500,000 there. Ours lasted 18 months. Theirs lasted two centuries. And you're going to say America's the intolerant Christians? We don't cover the rest of the story. We pick and choose what makes us look bad. Now, there's no question which trials are bad. Shouldn't happen. There's no question that America got out of it faster than any other nation. There's no question that America had slavery. There's no question America got out of it faster than any other nation. We're humans. We make mistakes, but we correct them faster than anybody else, and kids never hear that as part of the story. So when you look there, this is where due process rights come from. As a matter of fact, the most recent justice to retire off the Supreme Court is, is Justice Stephen Breyer. He's the most secular justice I can find in Supreme Court history. Can't find a guy more secular than him. And I was reading one of his decisions. He says, well, of course, we all know that due process rights, and due process rights, that's the fourth or the eighth amendment of the Bill of Rights. It's the right to confront your accuser, the right to compel witnesses in your own defense, the right to speak in your own defense. It's, it's all those due process rights. He said, of course, we all know the due process rights, the fourth or eighth amendment, came out of the Bible. Do we really? Who knew that they came out of the Bible? And I looked at his footnote, and he cited a book called Federal Practice and Procedure. Now, Federal Practice and Procedure is the, the, the law books on how to practice federal law, and they go from here off the stage. I mean, it's a long set. Volume 30 is what he cited. Volume 30 is dealing with due process rights, federal practice and procedure. There's 20 pages in Volume 30 showing how that all of our due process rights came out of the Bible. For example, the right to confront your accusers comes out of John 8.10. The right to compel witnesses in your behalf comes out of Proverbs 18:17. The right to speak in your own defense comes out of Acts 22:1 and on it goes. 
due process came from the Bible, came from the pilgrims. We don't know that today. Oh, it came from our secular constitution. No, it didn't. It came from Bible verses, and that's what they incorporated in it. So what happens is we know very little about the pilgrims and what they did. We know a whole lot more about Jamestown than we do about pilgrims. And yet this is what made America. And as I said, the pilgrims, you take virtually any picture of them. Take that picture. You know what's interesting? Every one of them is holding the Bible. This is who the pilgrims were. They, were. they were known as the people of the book. They're the ones that shaped America. So many of the things we have today in our Constitution, our culture, they came from the Bible. And so that's what these guys were. They were professing evangelical Christians, but unlike Jamestown, they were also biblical Christians. They didn't just profess Christianity. There's a lot of people who profess Christianity that don't live it. And they're quite an embarrassment. And I would say most of America is Jamestown Christians at this point. They cannot put a Bible verse to why they believe what they believe. See, it's the pilgrim Christians that defined who we were and that made a real difference. And so that's the difference in the 1619, 16th Isn't that cool of me to think of this? Well, I, I'm not the one who made the contrast. I'll take you back to 1888. This is a school wall map. You know what a wall map is, a big old thing that you hang on the, the wall of the classroom. This is a wall map from 1888 showing the two strands across America, the two influences in America. One is down here, founding Jamestown, 1619, the 1619 Project. The other you see above is 1620. These are the first two colonies, and each of them had a massive influence on America, but one had a greater influence than the other. And so if you look down here at 1619, you can see that ship coming ashore. It's hard for you to see, but there's a circle down there. This is what it looks like. See that circle? There's a ship coming ashore, and right beside the ship it says mammon. What's that? That's the old English word for money, greed and money. And it says there, one dollar. That's a colony that was more concerned about making money than about doing what was right. They were all about money and being an economic colony. And so what you see is they had an influence. There's no question. And you see that influence they had all across there. And it's, see where it says God's curse of slavery? Now, this is an 1888 map. This is not the 1619 Project. But look what you have there. They list all this influence, and, and they talk about uh, the, the Missouri Compromise, the, the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law, the Kansas-Nebraska Act 1854, the Dred Scott Decision, superstition, avarice, lust, greed, secession, rebellion, all the bad stuff came out of that philosophy in Jamestown. But there was a second one that they point to as well. Second one up top, you see there, if I blow that up, what's it say on the back of that book? The Bible. Oh. This is one that was founded on the Bible, and notice how that influence spread all the way across America, much more than influence Jamestown did. Jamestown had an influence, but the bigger influence is up there. And so you see God's blessing of liberty, and you see there that you get free speech, and you get schools, and you get, uh, you get patriotism, benevolence, you get love of country, you get happiness, and, and all the positive things came out of the pilgrim side. So you have both of these there. Now, what you have is 1619, they're professing Christians, and 1620 is biblical Christians. There's a huge difference in the impact of the two. And see, this is what we taught in school for so long, it was a tale of two cities. Today, we've chosen to teach 1619 and ignore 1620. I want to take you back to 1620 and say that's what we need in America right now. Because when you look at where we are, clearly in the nation, and this is what Revelation 1, 5, and 6 actually means. God, Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. Now, that kings and priests, that's what you see in both of those colonies. Because if you take the pilgrims that are oriented around the Bible, and they were capable of being kings and priests. You know how that worked? I told you they had annual elections. Let's have an election right now, and let's decide who's going to be our governor for the next year and who's going to be our pastor for the next year, and it will be out of this congregation. 
We don't go outside the congregation. We choose from among ourselves. The Bible said, choose out from among you, leaders of tens, fifty. See, that's not the way it was with Jamestown. Jamestown, these guys weren't capable of being kings or priests. They had to import their priests and import their kings. And the guy that, in Plymouth, the guy that might be pastor one year might be governor the next year. They were capable of being kings and priests. They understood the Bible well enough to know what God wanted in all of those arenas. See, today, we, there's so many Christians that could not be a leader in church or in state, either one. We have to go import our leaders and find somebody else to be our savior in politics or find somebody else to have a good, strong church. Not with the pilgrims. It came from among them because they were grounded in God's work. So when you look, the question is, all right, what makes politics work as it should? Because I would argue politics is not working well today. And I will take you back to what George Washington said. After 45 years of public service, the final address he gave is called his farewell address. In public school, we used to take a written exam on George Washington's farewell address once a year for the first eight years of school. We did that on the Constitution, the Declaration, and the State Constitution. That's how important his farewell address was. Look what he said in that farewell address. He said, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, of everything that makes our politics prosper, and by the way, I would, again, argue that our politics is not prospering right now. We are, we are polarized like we've never been. We're weaponized. Well, I guess at the time of the Civil War, we were polarized and weaponized, and we're, we're kind of approaching that place now where the people are willing to fight the other side, and truth is no longer what matters in my position. So we're all, all divided. He says, if you want political prosperity, he said, all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, he said, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Now, we're told today you need to keep religion and morality out of politics. Matter of fact, Rob Reiner's coming out with a film in two months all about Christian nationalism, people like me, people like Tim, people who think that God should be involved in every aspect of life. They've been after me for 20 years. I've been called Christian dominionist, Christian nationalist, because I think that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And I think there's actually two genders. And I think that we should be pro-life. And they cite all of those as reason to call me a Christian nationalist, that I'm trying to create a theocracy and impose my views on everyone else in America. I'm the first one to say that I hope 100% of Americans go vote. I don't want a theocracy. I don't want any part of a theocracy. I want Americans to choose, but I want Americans to make an informed choice. I want them to, to know the, the policies, and we're not teaching what the ground of this. We're not teaching right now that, for example, if you have an abortion, you're 620% more likely to have breast cancer than those that don't have abortions. If we were teaching truth, we would know that there's medical consequences for homosexuality. There's medical consequences for abortions. God forgives all that for sure. But if you do it his way, you have more blessings than when you don't do it his way. It's just real simple. People have to make that choice. So back to this. Of all the dispositions that happens to lead to political prosperity, religion, morality, indispensable supports, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. He said, anyone who tries to take religion and morality out of public life I don't let them call themselves a patriot. And I know a patriot when I see them. I had them at Valley Forge. I had them for eight years in the revolution. And I'm just telling you, if you try to secularize the public square, you're not an American patriot. Man, that's not what we're taught today. And that's why Rob Reiner and CNN did a big special. I mean, all, all the left is rolling out all over their media, all this Christian nationalism stuff. They want to see it secularized. And they're going after us who don't want to see it secularized. We want to see prayer back in schools, and we want to see kids acknowledge God if they want to. We want prayer at football games. That's Christian nationalism, these guys. So 
From what Washington said, what you get is political prosperity is the result of religion and morality. Now, having said that, where are we in America today? What does it look like right now? Well, every year the American Bible Society comes out with their report. The American Bible Society, the largest Bible Society in the world, and two years ago they came out with a report on 2022. And what we saw, Bible reading in America, you can see on the right side here, took a plummet. In one year, 25 million Americans decided they would no longer read the Bible at all. Then, if you look at last year's report that came out, last year's report, 2023 report, you'll find that what happened was it dropped off again, and we lost another 3 million Americans last year who don't read the Bible at all. That means in the last two years, we're up to 28 million Americans who have stopped reading the Bible just in the last two years. Now, that's not good for political prosperity. If religion and morality is what creates political prosperity, a lack of the knowledge, this is what creates Jamestown right there. This is the kind of stuff that takes us in the wrong direction. That makes us the Jamestown colony. So when you look at where we are nationally, reading the Bible, really important. But nationally, only 4% of Americans have a biblical worldview. In other words, out of 100 Americans you meet, only four are going to be pilgrims. 96 are going to be Jamestown people. That's not a good state for America to be in. If you look in the church, just among Christians, only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. So the church is not a whole lot stronger than the nation is with only 9% of Christians being pilgrim-like, being, being in that category. So you get the point I'm making. I'm, I'm driving us to decide to be pilgrims. We've got to get, we got to quit being evangelicals that are not biblical. We've got to be biblical and, and not just evangelical. And so within that framework, what's happened, our biblical literacy has caused us to not understand God's institutions. You know God created three institutions. He created the family. He created government. Uh, and let's take family for a minute. Go back to Genesis. God made them male and female. Male and female made he them. They were put in the garden. They had children. That's the institution of the family. God created the family, and he defined the family. Two genders. Real simple. That's what's under attack now. If you happen to be in Europe, like BBC, British Broadcasting Corporation, they had their corporate training, and European trainers taught them over the BBC that there's 150 different genders there, global butterflies. Um, if you happen to be Americans, we're not as stupid as Europe is apparently uh, because our helpful professors tell us there's only 81 genders in America. Yeah. We've lost our brain. Yes. Yes. You know, any of you can walk across the street to those cows over there and you won't have any trouble telling me how many genders there are and which gender is which. It's really easy. 81 genders from our helpful professors this is where education is gone. It's, it, we don't even understand. And so many Christians believe, believe that now because they don't know the Bible. They don't know God. Four times God says, and he made them male and female. Real easy. So simple. On top of that, the second institution God created was government. The third institution created church. And by the way, he created government before he created church. Back when you had Adam and Eve and they had children and Cain killed Abel and after Cain killed Abel, everything went downhill from there. There was murder, there was rape, there was pillage. By Genesis 8, God says, okay, I've had it. Let's just wipe it out and start again. Noah, let's do it with you. So the world floods, everything's gone. Noah gets off the ark in Genesis 9. As Noah gets off the ark in Genesis 9, first thing God says is, Noah, we're going to do it different from now on. And he gave him what are called the Noahide laws, that's civil government. First thing he says, Genesis 9, 6, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. Noah, whoever murders somebody, you take them out. That's the first time we have civil government. The Noahide laws are civil laws. That's what God gave before he had the church. 
He gave civil government. And then the third institution is that of the church, and we know that that's God's institution as well. But it's interesting, if I ask Christians to give me verses on the family, the church, and the government, they can give me a whole lot more on family and church than they can on government. This is an area we don't know the Bible on well. That's this generation. Let me take you back to the founding era. This is a guy named John Locke. He wrote the two treatises of government. Now, the two treatises of government, the reason that's significant, the reason you need to know about that is when we wrote the Declaration of Independence, the 56 founding fathers who wrote that, one of the 56 was a guy named Richard Henry Lee, this guy right here. Richard Henry Lee is actually the guy who made the motion that we do the Declaration of Separate from Great Britain. So he's, he's responsible for our independence but by the motion he made. And Richard Henry Lee said, he said, you know, the Declaration, he said the Declaration was copied from Locke's Two Treatises of Government. He said the Declaration of Independence, we just copied it out of Locke's Two So this book right there, that, that's the source of the Declaration of Independence. People read the Declaration, they don't read that book. You know what's interesting about that book? It references the Bible 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. How can you tell me civil government's a secular institution when you've got 1,500 verses just in that one book? See, Christians need to know the Bible in all of those areas, all of those arenas. So wrapping this down, when you look at those institutions, look what we have there, we're at the point where we need to be kings and priests. As Christians, we should be able to function in the government arena just as well as we function in the church arena or the family arena. We need to be able to, and the church really does have to get back involved in that government arena. Right now, we're not really involved in that all across the nation. One of the things I've been doing for years is just trying to get Christians to vote, which is a whole lot easier than running for office or getting an office or anything else. And Christians are not doing that very well. Uh, right now, it's only about one out of four Christians that votes in elections. That, that institution of government's not going to work right if Christians don't get back in and take biblical values with them. So that, that's the way it has to be. So looking at all this, Revelation 1, 5, and 6, Jesus Christ has made us kings and priests unto God's Father. My challenge to you is become a king and a priest. Be competent in both of those areas. How do you do that? You have to study the Bible. You have to be like the pilgrims. You guys, their governor talked about the fact that at the beginning, that the pilgrim. Pilgrims, the Bible's a brand new book for them. It had been put up for 1,300 years. The first English language Bible was in 1560. When they got that English language Bible, that was a brand new book. Man, we've never seen this before. So they're like uneducated people learning the Bible. And as they learn it, they put it into practice. And you see what happened as a result of it. They're just learning stuff, putting it in practice, which we can too. That's what produces political prosperity. I'm going to challenge you to become a pilgrim. Spend the time in the Word. You know, we know from Matthew 4, 4, Man doesn't live by bread alone, he lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You've got to have God's word. So let me challenge you. When you sit down to eat breakfast and feed your physical body, pull your Bible out and read some verses and feed your spiritual body at the same time. When you sit down for lunch and feed your physical body, pull your Bible out and read a little bit. Give your, your spirit some food too. And when you sit down at night and eat, then pull your Bible out, read some more verse. You need to be feeding your spiritual man just like you feed your physical man. We're really good at feeding the physical man. Let's get good at feeding the spiritual man. And as you do, it will change the way you think. You will see things in a different light. You'll be like the pilgrims where that you can shape what goes on around you. You can, you can take the secular Jamestown people out of it, and you can put the pilgrim people in it, and you get much better results. America is much more defined by the pilgrims than it is by Jamestown, but they're working really hard today to make us into Jamestown, not the pilgrims. We've got to be the ones that stand up to that and say, no, we're not going to do that. As Tim mentioned, we've got materials out back. There's the book called The American Story. There's Founder's Bible. There's other stuff. You can go online and see if there's anything you like or want. Why don't we stand? We'll close and be dismissed. Thanks, guys. 
Father, as we go out of here this week, Father, we pray the Holy Spirit just bring back to our remembrance the things that we've heard. Help us to see ways to apply your your As we read the scriptures, God, let the Holy Spirit give us revelation and insight into things that we've never even seen before that will be practical solutions for what goes on around us. Lord, as we go back into work and into school and into everything we do, help us to be God conscious and, and, and not just be the Jamestown people that profess you, but help us be the pilgrim people that spend time in your word and know you through your word. Father, give us boldness because those around us won't understand that. And we're going to seem really strange to them when we start actually living out your word, but that will be what changes them. That will be the answer they're looking for. Help us to have the boldness, Father, number one, to do this, and number two, to apply it and help other people understand it. God, I pray your blessings on everyone here. Send us out with your peace and your grace and your joy in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to this message from Christian Ministries Church. If this message impacted you and you'd like to sow into our ministry, you can give at cmchurch.com. If you'd like to listen to more of our messages, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Christian Ministries. God bless.